I'm Jill Schaff, and you're listening to Last Night at School Committee. Ross Wilson and I are here to summarize for you what happened last night during Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. Last night began with the superintendent's report on returning to school, including a plan to return students in K through eight to five days a week of in-person learning beginning April 26th. There was a discussion and positive vote on the 2021-22 budget and an elaborate presentation on high schools, including celebrating the highest graduation rate ever and the resurfacing of the previously shelved Mass Corps proposal. Good morning, Ross. Good morning, Jill. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I hope you're well too. I am, thank you. All right, so Jill, let's start from the top with the superintendent's report, where the superintendent opens up with celebrating the graduation rate from last year's class. The Mass Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, otherwise known as DESE, released uh, our 2020 graduation rates. And we are so proud to announce tonight that BPS is celebrating its highest four-year graduation rate on record, 74.4%. That's 2.2% uh, overall. Um, I am first and foremost so proud of our amazing students, the class of 2020, who last spring you know, could have given up on us um, and they lost their proms and they lost their graduations in person and boy, they overcame so many obstacles. Um, but the district, despite of that, saw increases in our four-year graduation rates for multiple student groups, including increases between two and three percentage points for our black and Latinx and white students. So Joe, we saw this actually in the in a headline um, in the Boston Globe, I think it was last week when the school department released a press release on graduation rates. Um, it's so interesting. You know, the district had previously said that about 40% of our high school students were not logging into remote learning last year. And in fact, had no contact with the district, yet the graduation rate went up. This may be due to graduation requirements being waived last year. There was no requirement to take and pass the MCAS and promotion and grading requirements were waived by the district. And while we had historic, historically high graduation rates, we learned also that the college entry rates are at really an all-time low. Mm. We also learned that the mass core completion rates went down. So this is not a simple headline, and we should be careful about celebrating when so many of our students continue to struggle due to the pandemic. So help me to understand this, though. Is it the case that if you're a student, you either graduated or you left? Because with all of the graduation requirements dropped, it means that we lost the rest of the students, right? Yes, I mean, that, that's right. Either, either you will be noted as, as having dropped out or most likely graduated last year. So as we've talked about numerous times, Jill, on, on this podcast, we've, we've had a massive problem with chronic absenteeism, with losing contact with our students, particularly our high school students at the 11th and 12th grade. We knew weren't logging in and, and essentially we lost track of them. So this is, this is highly concerning. So this is a bigger story here, really. Absolutely. And, and we'll get into this a little bit later in this podcast when we get into the high school presentation, right? where, where we, we try to understand the numbers a little better and understand what's happening in the system. Um, Jill, the superintendent then went on to celebrate the historic swearing in of Mayor Kim Janey yesterday, who was the first woman and the first person of color to serve as mayor of Boston. As we were updating our letterhead yesterday, I couldn't help but noticed that it now displays the names of three women of color, Alex Oliver Davila, Brenda Caselius, and Kim Janey, 
History Making and BPS2. What a wonderful way to mark Women's History Month. The superintendent went on to talk about the re uh, returning students to in-person learning five days a week. Mm -hmm. On Monday, BPS submitted our plan to the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education to begin providing five days a week of in-person learning for all students in grades K-0 to 8, starting on Monday, April 26. Desi approved our waiver request, and within the last hour, we've notified families in their preferred language about this updated timeline. We continue to process the surveys we sent to all families, asking them to select five days of in-person learning or five days of remote learning for the remainder of the year. About 59% of our families have selected five days of in-person learning, while 41% prefer fully remote learning. Here you will see the number of shifts in learning model preferences. About 80% of students are staying with their current learning model. The majority of families who previously preferred hybrid learning are now opting for in-person learning, while the majority of families who preferred remote learning are again choosing that option. So Jill, the superintendent explained that she's gonna give families more time to respond to this survey about choosing either if families will return to five days of in-person learning or if they will choose to be fully remote. And ultimately, the district will assign students that they haven't heard from, which is so far, you know, we have about a third of students uh, left who have not responded to if they will return fully in person or if they'll return remote. What we understand, though, is that the school department will assign students based on the model that they currently are attending. So if students are currently choosing to be hybrid, they will be, if they haven't responded, they'll be assigned to five days in person. Mm. And if students are currently remote and they haven't responded by the deadline, they will be assigned to be fully remote. Mm. So this is a big, this is a big deal, Jill. And uh, I just want to note again that the, the state did approve a waiver and the first day of in-person learning for five days for students in kindergarten through grade eight will be the day after that April vacation, which is April 26. And important also to note that we have not heard anything about high school yet. So, you know, we really haven't heard anything about returning our, our students in grades nine through 12. Right. So um, the meeting went on and Mr. DeRuzzo asked uh, if the district was truly going to be ready for opening. Um, I met with some East Boston uh, families earlier uh, this week and uh, they, they expressed concern about receiving information with respect to the choices uh, of uh, in-person or, uh, or, or, or hybrid or remote. And, and specifically those that didn't have access to email uh, and those that uh, have low uh, literacy, either uh, uh, in, in English or in, uh, or in Spanish. And so I just wanted to put, put that out there. I don't know if that's, uh, you know, if that's representative of uh, families that are, are of limited um, you know, English language uh, or are not literate. Uh, but uh, it was raised to me by a group of families. So I'll raise that issue. And I have another point, I don't know if I can maybe say my next point. Um, I, I was able to read the, uh, the letter from the, the commissioner, which I don't know, seemed tartly worded, but, um, but it's clear that there's no, um, that we're not gonna be granted uh, further, you know, further waiver. So are we confident that that come April 26th, that all our families who uh, choose uh, to 
to, to, to be in person, uh, that that will be, that everyone will be ready uh, for that. The superintendent responds by saying that they're trying everything they can to communicate with families and that they will be ready for school fully in person in April, but that they are still trying to figure out capacity issues in the schools that have 90% plus families who are choosing to return. Right, and Jill, I also understand, you know, the school department is working on, you know, busing, you know, the transportation schedule and, yeah. and other issues, but this is certainly interesting, you know, school by school, you know, the superintendent noted that some schools have the far majority of their students wanting to return in person where others may not. And certainly the district has to figure out capacity issues. Most importantly, it seems like lunch where students have to eat six feet away from each other um, without their masks on. And so that will require some creative scheduling for those in-person students. So Dr. Rivera and Ms. Robinson asked some follow-up questions about how COVID-19 surveillance testing is going and the status of fresh food from My Way Cafe. Do you have any, any data around the pool testing and whether there's, I, I just know that there were very few children at my son's school that participated that first week. And so I'm curious how we're, we're dealing with that. Yep, thank you for that, um, Dr. Rivera. We had a, about 300 pool tests last week, and I, I don't have the, the latest number uh, across the district. And of, of that, I think we had um, eight of those pools that showed up positive. So we are um, continuing to do the pool testing. Consenting is the issue. We must get consent from parents, and still parents are not wanting to um, consent for the, for the pool testing? Huh. Only 300 tests, Ross. This seems so small in a district of 54,000 kids. I know they're all not back yet, but I wonder if there should be a report at each school committee meeting, including a better plan from BPS on helping families consent. I'm surprised that the superintendent doesn't see this as a more critical safety tool as all families and kids go back to in-person learning. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, what we've seen in the last, um, as you know, we've seen over the last number of days, the positivity rate is kind of stagnating here in Boston. And we know that there's not a vaccine going to be available for, for our students uh, under 16 for quite a while. And so it is, you know, surveillance testing is a really important tool to keep our students safe particularly when we return, you know, a, a, a lot, thousands of students uh, in K-0 through grade eight. So I am hopeful that the school system is able to really work on getting more tests happening and um, more consent from families. Also, you know, Ms. Robinson sort of, sort of gets into a little bit where she asks these questions almost every meeting, Jill, where, you know, Ms. Robinson says, how is the learning experience for students going, right? She's, she's been talking ever since students have been remote about you know, trying to figure out how we engage our students in different learning models. And Ms. Robinson sort of says, you know, going back now to five days uh, in person and for students being fully remote, how will that impact the quality of the learning experience? Question is about the quality of the learning experience. I know we're gonna be going from you know, two days in the hybrid to um, five days rather quickly. And the question is, what is the hybrid experience now? Is it more, um, you know, laptop based, even if with, with half the group in person and half the group, um, you know, virtual, um, or 
are the students that are in the classrooms able to you know, access more hands-on learning? And then my second question will be, as we move to four or five days, are there issues that people have raised as concerned or have there things that they have learned that they are pleasantly surprised by as they try to juggle all of these new opportunities? Um, as for the learning model, it's different at every school and it could mm -hmm. be different even by classroom grade. or by yeah. grade level, grade. right? Um, so like at our early childhood classrooms, they're really trying um, to not have the use of the computers um, because they realize it's hard for littles to access. So mm -hmm. they're doing a lot of the uh, co-teaching model at the, at the early childhood um, centers that we have. Mm -hmm. um, there is at the uh, elementary and high school level an approach where, you know, kids will Zoom together on, you know, in a call do the morning meeting together as a community, and then maybe shut down the com computer, do some independent practice at home. Um, and then while they're in person, then the teacher will teach them in person. Then there's also the simultaneous learning that happens where you have the students on the computer um, or not on the computer, but the teacher's just projecting the kids on the computer and the teacher's just teaching regularly mm -hmm. um, in the classroom. And then you have models where you have um, true true classes that are just in person and the teacher's teaching just in person and the other teacher is teaching remote and they may have more kids in the remote classroom, like class size is 22, but they're working together. So they have 30 kids in the remote and the in-person teacher has um, the other 18 or 20. Mm -hmm. So Jill, this is a, bit confusing, but what is great is that there, there's a diversity of ways that schools are approaching teaching students both in person and remote. And it's important, it's important for these decisions to be made at the school level, because as we heard earlier, schools really have different situations in terms of in person and virtual classrooms, and teachers are figuring out creative ways in order to serve students in the best way possible. Right. And they really absolutely need the flexibility to do that I think going through the end of the year. So then Ms. Robinson asks about My Way Cafes and whether or not they're being reactivated and um, the superintendent responds to her question. What, what about things like um, food service? Um, are, the, are we able to act, you know, activate the My Way Cafes or what kind of food will we be transitioning from to again with the whole idea of five days? Yes, we are um, moving toward all of that on-site preparation. Um, and so um, I can certainly have Laura Benavides give you an update and provide an update. We did update the city council um, the other day as well. So we can certainly make that available. Um, we are having on-site preparation already at 20 of our schools. Um, and so we continue to expand on-site fresh meals at our schools um, when they're open in person. Great. Thank you. And then Jill, you know, the, the meeting moved on to public comment and geez, there was less than 10 people who made a public comment last night, which is, it's just a, a really significant change from previous meetings, but also from, you know, historically during budget votes, we see 
a huge turnout at meetings. And, um, you know, we saw literally, you know, less than 10 people made public comments. And the comments were primarily focused on, on budgets and restoring trust, both with the Boston Student Advisory Council and, and with students at large. So then, Jill, the, the superintendent presented her FY22 budget, as you noted uh, earlier, and uh, it, this budget is about $1.3 billion, and the budget passed with a unanimous vote. Much of the conversation was about the approximately $400 plus million that will be coming to the district in federal relief funds. These funds are not under the purview of the school committee to vote on, but members certainly have a position on how they should be used. Let's start with a question from Mr. DeArujo about the budget. As a general comment, and as, as I was able to do my, uh, you know, my diligence, my accelerated uh, diligence over the past few weeks or several weeks, is that, um, you know, this, as we've all noted, this is the largest budget uh, we've ever had. Um, and we have a, an enrollment that continues to decrease. Uh, when I graduated from BPS in 1999, uh, we had 68,000 students uh, in the system, and 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 you know we are we are today, in uh, you know a little around 50,000. And you know part of that is the demographic changes of our city, um, but part of that is the the choices that our families are making. Um, and I think that given that we you know we have these significant resources, probably resources that uh, could you, we couldn't have imagined previously, uh, that the expectations are higher than ever. Um, and then the scrutiny, uh, understandably and appropriately, uh, is higher than ever. Um, we've adopted, in addition to these resources, you know, we've adopted, um, uh, you know, an ideological lens with around, you know, with the, the policy around anti-racism. Um, and I think that the, the you know, the proof is going to be in the pudding uh, with respect to outcomes. Uh, and that's something that, uh, you know, I know uh, all families are, are tracking. And of course, we as a school committee uh, we'll be tracking as well. Uh, as a, a final note, um, the superintendent uh, uh, raised the, the ESSER funds, the Biden, the Biden dollars coming in. Um, and first, I want to appreciate the superintendent and her team uh, for educating me uh, on these funds uh, and taking the time to do so. So I, I really appreciate that. Uh, and I just want to say on those funds, I know we're going to have uh, broader discussions and the public process around it. Um, but what I want to make sure and kind of put my stake in the ground on it is that uh, that these funds are used uh, for uh, you know the children that have uh, suffered and lost uh, in the in the past year. Uh, that is why we're getting uh, these funds. Uh, we're getting it because of their loss, and I want to make sure that uh, even the ones that are, are are graduating this year that we find a way uh, over as we spend this money over a number of years that we can we can give them benefits as well. Uh, even when they leave the system. Um, and the, the test for me, if we're succeeding on that is, you know, can I talk to that family on Chelsea Street in East Boston uh, and have them tell me uh, explicitly uh, how these funds benefited their child? And then Ms. Robinson offers this comment also. Part of me is very happy and part of me um, is a bit sad about it because um, now having been through this process for probably this is my sixth or seventh year, um, there are patterns that we continue to talk about. And yes, it, we, we are spending a lot more money, we're getting a lot of things done, but there's still things that continue to lag 
that um, get glossed over as we move forward because new issues are um, shown. I mean, we've got a pandemic now, but we promised schools walls two years ago that we have not been able to deal with. So one of the pieces I'm hoping that we'll be able to do is to stop and because of the pandemic and because of some of the gains that we have made, and maybe this will take place with the ESSER funds. For example, we need to relook at all of our schools in, B, in Bill BPS using the racial equity planning tool because we didn't have that when that BPS, when Bill BPS was first formed. And so there are things that are not being covered in this budget that are critical to giving every child what they need. And so that's where my sadness comes in because yes, I am thrilled that we have more um, social workers and we're getting more counselors and we're getting those things. But you know, some of our schools will never have an art room because there's no room for an art room or room for a library. But the question is, you know, you know, as part of Build BPS, I will ask the same question I've asked many times over. When will we come together to discuss what kind of physical buildings or opportunities within buildings do all of our students deserve? And how will we make sure if we can't fit it in the building, we will find it within their community and we will rethink, you know, are you better off going to school in your community and in, in accessing your library or your medical care? You know, we seem to have a lot of different concepts that will build greater successes, but it feels like they have some underlying questions we're not willing to ask. And so continuing just to build a bigger and bigger budget doesn't always mean that we're going to be able to solve the, the critical issues that we say we want to. So I'm hoping that we will shift and, and relook at things like our, um, you know, the weighted student formula moving forward because, you know, the fact is there will always be students declining, schools with declining enrollments. If there are fewer students to have, they're not gonna be there. If we as a district choose not to place students in a certain school, that school will have declining enrollments. Those are emotional drains on folk. And so the question is, how do we build the equitable school district that we want without continuing to hang these sort of issues on ourselves, our families all of the time? And then the superintendent responds by reminding everyone of the three-year $100 million investment from the city. I, I do want to, uh, Ms. Robinson, thank you. I do want to remind everyone too that this is a $100 million investment from the mayor. Um, this is the second yeah. year of that $100 million. I think it was a historic investment by the city. Um, and I can't, and we've now just been closed. The city's been closed for a year. We know that there's hotels not earning money. We know that businesses aren't bringing in money. We know that the entire economy has tanked. And the Mayor Walsh, former Mayor Walsh, didn't blink to continue this funding. We didn't get one question 
from the city about this 36 million that we're investing. I, I just wanna bring, cause if we didn't have this and I can tell you my colleagues and I'm sure Mr. O'Neill can tell you this as well from superintendents across the entire nation, they had cuts that they were making and layoffs because they had to pay, pay for PPE. <laughs> you know, they had to quickly rally and do HVAC systems and get all of the, um, you know, health and safety operational needs. Everybody in the district was kept whole. Um, nobody was uh, laid off for the purposes of the pandemic. Um, and we are not seeing, we had seven or eight people give comments tonight and a typical budget night, we would have had major cuts when you have a, an enrollment projection of 2,500 students less in your budget. Add that to the fact of then maybe not having this additional revenue, which is of also remember, this additional revenue is above and beyond salary increases too. And I don't think the public understands the incredible amount of investment the city is making into um, our schools. And I just want to I want to uh, level set and make sure that we are so lucky to have this funding to continue to invest in more equitable schools for our kids. I realize that there is a big fight and there is a lot still more to, to do to really fill the whole the opportunity gaps that we have for our children across the city. And I also wanna recognize that there are huge deficits in uh, the equity of our school facilities. That is not lost on me or on our Build PPS team. And um, I will tackle that. Uh, if it's the McKinley School in the, you know, our, our schools that are Roxbury, that are smaller, um, that have been neglected for a long time. Um, there are a lot of things that we have to still do. But with this budget tonight, I just wanted to make sure you all understood that this could have been a whole lot worse because the city is in um, tough shape with the fact that they've been basically shut down for, for a year. Ross, I was surprised that this was the superintendent's response. This is not the conversation, I don't think, that Mr. DiRugio and Ms. Robinson were trying to provoke. They have heard the numbers. They know what the budget is. I think they're trying to dig deeper. They, it sounds to me like they wanna have a conversation about how these windfalls are going to be spent. Yes, and Jill, you know, I I actually would argue that the city is in not that tough of an economic and fiscal shape. Um, give me a moment to explain my thinking here. There was a really interesting article that we'll post in our blog written by Bill Walzak for the Dorchester Reporter on the city of Boston finances. And this article essentially says that at the beginning of the Walsh administration in 2014, the city's annual budget was about $2.6 billion. When the mayor, you know, this year leaves or the secretary of labor position, the budget number is now $3.6 billion. So literally a billion dollars more than when Mayor Walsh first became mayor. That's an increase of 38% from 2014 when the inflation rate was only 11%. So, you know, it actually, you know, over the number of years, 
property taxes has grown um, significantly. The building boom has added about 578 million. And so both between the building boom and property taxes, that's where we see an additional billion dollars in revenue for the city. Yeah. So where were these additional dollars used? You know, the bulk of the billion dollars, 632 million went to personnel, mainly for salary increases and an additional 903 employees. The department with the largest increase in staff was the Boston Public Schools. There's 864 more staff members in the Boston Public Schools than there was in 2014, while the number of students decreased from 57,000 to now we're about 50,000 students in the district. So I think this is just, it's an important point here that the city actually does have a significant amount of money that has come in in revenue and that the city has chosen really to use a lot of that revenue on personnel and figuring out how they use that personnel to support student learning. So it'll be interesting, Jill, to see the results of that investment um, going forward. Right. And it also, it, it, it kind of just suggests it's not terribly surprising that over three years, Mayor Walsh's $100 million commitment, incremental to the school budget, it's not surprising that it didn't go away because the, the city's doing quite well, actually. And actually that we're finding that to be true across lots of districts and, and at, at the state level too. So Ross, the meeting was really rolling along at this point, and we moved um, into the last presentation on high schools. So this kind of long presentation had 12 presenters over one and a half hours. It was hard to summarize everything that was offered, but in particular, let's talk about the data that was presented. Right, Jill. So first, let me say, There's a lot of information in this presentation, as you noted, and we really would encourage listeners to take a look at the presentation from last night, go through all the tables. There's a lot of numbers. It's important to understand this data. So first and foremost, the graduation rate has increased, as we noted earlier, to 75.4%. Okay. Now, Jill, it is important to note that this varies by school. So we have some schools like English High School and East Boston High School that are approaching 80% graduation rates. And we have other schools like Brighton High School that is about 50%, a little over 50% graduation rate. So there's great variation in graduation rates. And in fact, some schools went down last year and some schools went up last year. Now, mass core completion rate. Remember, we've talked about this, Mass Core, the common sort of requirements to be a graduate. It still has not been voted on by BPS, but that they are measuring how many students have completed Mass Core. It hasn't been voted on, Ross, but it was presented at the last meeting that it will be one of the metrics on which school committee judges their own goals and guardrails. So it's, it's very pertinent. Correct. Um, so it will be a future measure, um, school committee success and school system success. Yeah. So mass core completion rate is at 28.5%. So again, 75.4% graduation rate, yet 28.5% of our students are completing mass core requirements. Also in the school committee's goal uh, or goals is advanced coursework enrollment. Okay. Advanced coursework enrollment is at 83.4%. So 83.4% of our students have enrolled in an advanced course. You may ask, how many have completed an advanced course? That's even more important. 57% have completed an advanced course. 
right? So, you know, while the goal the school committee has chosen to focus on or the measure that they've chosen to focus is on enrollment into an advanced course, um, we should actually be paying attention to how many students are actually completing because we're seeing almost 30% of our students enroll but do not complete an advanced course. Right. And then Jill, most importantly, how are we preparing our students for college and uh, career success, right? This is all about how do we prepare our students past BPS. When they graduate from BPS, how are they prepared to, to achieve in college and career? Our college completion rate in six of our graduates in six years, so take, you know, we, we sort of measure, we give students six years to complete college is 50%. Yeah. So 50% of our students graduate college in six years. So let me just do this one more time, Jill. 75 point. Right. 75% of them are graduating from high school and then it's 50% of that number, right? That's correct. Yeah. 75.4% of our students are graduated from high school each year or last year, I should say. 50% of our graduates who have enrolled in college are completing college in six years. Yeah. So while the top line graduation data went up, the data underneath tells a more dire story about what is happening in our school system. And as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, graduation requirements were waived this year, which for sure had an impact on the graduation rate. Yes. And in this school committee meeting, the superintendent was very clear about her beliefs on testing and accountability and this last year's graduation rate. Mm. When asked by Mr. DeRugio if she thought the graduation rate went up because of waiving graduation requirements, she said this. I have a pretty strong philosophical belief that standardized tests given at one time and one point in time are not a good measure of a student's overall achievement. Um, and I do believe that they are um, racist in nature, like Dr. Rivera said, and I think that they um, bias children. Um, I actually, uh, as you know, was commissioner of education. I saw how these tests were made. Um, you know, if test questions were too easy and everybody got them right, those test questions were thrown out. Um, so, you know, I think that there are um, different statistical measures that are used in how these tests are created. Then they're, once they do these field studies with, with the tests, they're given to panels who look at them they look at the data by race and by gender and by disability and by economic disadvantage. And they look at the percentages of kids who got the test item right or the kids who didn't get the test item right. Um, I think there needs to be a whole lesson that's given to the public about these standardized tests and what they do and do not do. And I do believe they do damage to children at age three, I mean, at grade three, when we tell them they're not proficient and I don't think we do enough um, psychological tests. I, as commissioner, spent time talking to um, folks in Washington, asking why is it we give these tests three through three through eight and give them again in um, high school? What's the evidence base for giving them every grade level? What's the evidence based for giving standardized tests? And I was literally told that there was none. I said, where is it <laughs> after all these years, you know, uh, to, to show we've been doing these standardized tests since No Child Left Behind in 2001. And we still see gaps rising. So I think we should really spend our time looking at the kinds of things we did last year 
which was lifting up children, rallying behind them, making sure they were able to show their comp competence, working with our teachers around assessment tools that really look at what children know and can do, and then help us better understand um, how we're putting them out in the world and whether they're ready. Doing this mass core is part of that, trying to create a graduation standard that's competency-based. Now we need to align the measures that are appropriate. I would strongly um, say, and I believe, that we sent kids out with a diploma and those who go out without a diploma are in much worse shape than if they had been denied the diploma simply because they couldn't sit for a test. Jill, Jill, what, what is clear is that there's, there's a bit of lack of clarity. The superintendent does not like standardized measures. However, they are key parts of the school committee's measures for their goals and alignment to the, the superintendent's strategic plan. Yeah. You may have, um, you may remember last week we talked about um, MCAS being used for our students with disabilities to see if they're being successful. They're also used for our eighth grade students in math, science, and ELA yeah. to determine if they're being successful. So, you know, the superintendent's clear she does not like standardized tests, but they are definitely embedded in the school committee's uh, as measure, key measures in the school committee's goals. Also, we should note that standardized tests are required by the federal and state government. Also, the superintendent thinks that there should be flexibility and competency determinations for students to show that they're ready to graduate, yet she and the school committee want really one uniform set of graduation requirements. Yes, and then she, she also said that, you know, her opinion is that we should be sending kids out into the world, it sounded like unprepared, but with a diploma, versus holding them back and giving, what, giving them what they need to graduate ready for the world and with a diploma. I'm sure that's not what she meant, but she did say that last night. You know, Jill, what I loved about the high school presentation, the, and this was like a one and a half hour presentation last night. What I loved was to hear the success stories from the incredible school leaders. Um, there was, uh, there was four school leaders last night who presented, including the head of school from East Boston High School and the head of school from English High School. These uh, heads of schools talked about the great success they've had in growing their graduation rates over time. They've talked about this as not just like last year, they've talked about this as like the last six years, right? They've, these are long-term strategies that they've put into place to help their students graduate college and career ready. And I think, again, this shows a need for flexibility and autonomy and allowing our schools to create the programs and the environment needed for their students to be successful. And, you know, if, if you have a chance to listen to last night's presentation, really tune into the headmasters. I mean, it was quite, or the, the heads of schools. It was quite um, remarkable to hear what they've done. Yeah, they were great. So committee member, Vice Chair O'Neill, offered a thoughtful summary of his takeaways from the high school presentation. Um, I share the um, concerns that, that have been raised about, you know, in, in my mind, I, it comes down to the fundamental question. Do we feel responsibility for our students pre-K through 12, or do we feel responsibility for them pre-K through 16? Because the research is showing us that we are not setting up our students to succeed, um, certainly those who are going on to college and, um, you know, Mass Corps to me, those, those numbers that show Mass Corps of our students versus the statewide average 
And admittedly, that's a whole bunch of uh, different districts, but as one of the presenters pointed out tonight, there's some encouraging work going on in Lawrence and a few other um, gateway cities as well that show our students can do mass core work. And that's what happened at last night's school committee meeting. We are left with the following questions and reflecting on this meeting. How will the district support 2020 graduates as well as graduates from this school year who ended their high school careers in less than optimal circumstances? And how will we use the federal funding to help both those students and current families who, has, who have also suffered greatly during these past two years? What will five days a week in person or fully remote look like across all grades? Will students have different teachers? Will students be able to switch classes in person at the upper grade levels? What happens if a family wants to switch from in-person to remote learning? And with school choice season um, coming to a close, when will families find out the next year's assignments? And what are our enrollment numbers for next year? Mm. Who is taking advantage of the 22,000 summer opportunities that were presented at last week's school committee meeting? How will the district ensure that every student has a plan and how will they track this? And how will BPS ensure safety in their programs for the summer? Will it include surveillance testing for COVID-19? And what are the other expected protocols? So how do, how do we engage? How do we help? Here are some ideas. Boston City Council approves the school department's budget that was voted on last night. It's the biggest part of the city's budget. Make sure they know what you think about the budget and where you have questions or like to see changes. Advocate for a clear strategy on how the influx of federal recovery money will be spent for long-term positive change for BPS. Also attend an exam, exam school task force meeting. These are held each Tuesday night at 5 p.m. and the link is on the BPS website. Lastly, email us at info at shawfoundation.org your ideas on how to support this year's and last year's graduates of BPS. Thank you for listening to Last Night at School Committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston's students. Have a great day.